Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. This is Kim Greenhouse. It gives me great pleasure to introduce Kevin Richardson. He is completely turning the wildlife industry on its head, changing the rules about how we relate to wildlife, particularly wildlife in captivity. He is the author, along with Tony Park, of a wonderful book you should all read called Part of the Pride, My Life Among the Big Cats of Africa. He has a wonderfully classy wife named Mandy, who does the PR and marketing for him, who's awesome with people. And frankly, he has shown that we have to be rethinking our relationship not only to conservation, but to nature, to wildlife. He's also the producer, presenter, and the animal behaviorist of a brand new film called White Lion, Home is a Journey. He has produced other documentaries. One is called Dangerous Companions, and the other one is called In Search of a Legend about Black Leopards. He has so much to teach us. Welcome Kevin Richardson to It's Rainmaking Time. Good evening. Good evening to you. Thank you very much for having me. I'm really honored to have you on the show, Kevin. And there's so much that you communicated in your book, Part of the Pride. I read it twice, actually. I think the first thing that was very profound about the book, and I really want to talk about the book because I know it came out in 2009. I want to really start with that, if we can. You make a lot of these distinctions about hunting, about farming, about how we treat and take care of wild animals in captivity. And you also make some distinctions in the book about just because they're in captivity doesn't mean we get to treat them poorly. You have a paradigm about this that's as serious and as rigorous as Muhammad Yunus's of the Grameen Bank when he said to the banking industry and to humanity, we don't have to use collateral to issue loans. What you're doing in your body of work is really turning the tables on perceptions of animals who are in captivity. Talk about that. It all started pretty much a long time ago. I had the same kind of thinking as most people before I met my first two lions. But you know, having got to meet these creatures and realize that there's more to a lion than just these big cats that everyone perceives to be ferocious man-eating predators, and that these two lion cubs that were actually brothers were so different and had such different personalities, it got me really thinking about the kind of lives that animals do lead in captivity. And I'm not just talking about lions. It's all animals, in fact. I mean, we can take what I say about things in the book and bring it to the home and, and the way some people can even treat their domestic animals. But specifically for lions, I thought there's got to be a different way to get down and work with them to make their lives happy in captivity. And then I decided, and it wasn't a conscious decision, it just so happened. But the way it so happened is that I formed extremely close relationships with the animals and became part of their family. And by doing so, it made their lives a lot easier and it made my life a lot easier working with them in captivity. Because having an animal in captivity that just wants to eat you or is terrified when you come near it, it doesn't make a happy situation for you or for the animal. So that was the thinking. And I also noticed in the book that you've had a lot of these challenges with the people that are looking from the outside in at you and what you're doing, not really getting it, kind of distorting what it is that you're really doing, but not understanding that you're making connections with these animals. You have relationships with them. They're not just pets or employees of yours. And I love that. That is so true. And if you look at my run, you know, when I was two years in, I didn't really have a platform to stand on and preach about it because people would sit there and go, well, what do you know? You're going to get eaten in another year anyway. 
and you're new at this, so, you know, convention overrules you, so to speak. And just to go on about that, I mean, I met a guy the other day who really actually summed up what I was trying to get at in the book. He said, you know, Kevin, I really got what your book was about, the underlying message. And for him, it was, I talk a lot about relationships, and that is what I pride myself on, is the fact that I actually do have relationships with these animals. It's not some crazy man going into the lion's den and trying to tame the wild beast. I don't proclaim to do that. What he was saying to me is that everyone could go away from reading this book and say, well, what is your lion, you know, in life? And I found that quite interesting. That's a great question. That's a perceptive person. (laughs) Yeah, he was. (laughs) I noticed that you go kind of back and forth into the spirituality of this. And on one hand, you say, I'm not into spiritual mumbo jumbo. But on the other hand, these animals have an energy about them. They have an aura about them. That's real. Correct. Yeah, I don't think you could do what you were doing if that wasn't so. Do you? People refer to me as the lion whisperer. And that's just a label that I've gotten over the years due to a newspaper article that did the rounds. And the more I tried to back away from that, the more people called me it. So ultimately, you know, somebody sat me down one day and said, listen, instead of trying to get rid of this name attached, why don't you just use it in a positive way and in a positive light? But on the line whispering and on the spirituality side of it, you know, people were starting to say, well, you know, if you've got this ability, you know, got this wild pride of lions in their reserve, can you come and talk to them and figure out what's going on with them? You know, so from that perspective, no. But when you enter into the presence of being with a lion, you do realize that each individual has this energy about them. And that, yes, for sure, there is that aura that you've got to deal with and the sixth sense of being with them and just knowing. You know, people say, well, how do you know that the lion is not going to just turn on you? And it's a really hard question to answer because you just do. It's just that connection. I also thought it was really classy of you in the book to honor Steve Irwin and to share that he's somebody that put his money where his mouth is and stood in his vision, but also financed that vision. I think Steve Irwin kind of paved the way for people to be able to receive you, don't you think? Absolutely. I mean, if there's one guy who I would like to follow in his footsteps, it is Steve Irwin, because he had the same kind of criticism that I'd face on a day-to-day basis, is that people were like, oh, yeah, well, the crocodiles are going to get him. And I think maybe there was an element of that's why a lot of people followed, just to see if that did happen one day. But, you know, what I really admired is he was a guy who came from that background. I mean, his heart and soul was really in it. And the stardom came as a result of that, but he never lost focus of where his roots really were, and that was you know, funding conservation and getting really behind it. Whereas there's a lot of personalities out there that are really good and well liked, but if you actually go deeper down, you know, it's from one project to the next, and each project is treated like a different venture. What I really liked about Steve was, similar to me, is that it started from his passion and his love of what he does. It's really noticeable when people are doing something from their heart versus when they're just doing it for the money or for the commercial opportunity of it. You wrote a bit about the lion farms that you were taken into and revealed what happens there. I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about that and educate the public. I know you did write extensively about it in your book, but It was interesting to note that when you tried to do something about these lion farms, that industries all of a sudden went under threat. And I wonder if you could share something contextually about that with the audience. Yeah, sure. I mean, it's such a controversial topic, especially in South Africa, um, this whole issue of farming lions actually to be hunted. And the serious problem that I have and had 
is when lion cubs are utilized as kind of like a petting object and people can go and form close bonds and relationships with them. And then those same animals, when they mature and they become a little bit dangerous for people to interact with, land up becoming trophies. And this is what was happening. I mean, there's ethical and unethical business in any industry. I mean, uh, that happens, we know, uh, the world throughout. But especially when it comes to the industry pertaining to lions, it just seems money is the overwhelming factor here and greed. So although I do say in my book, I understand from the perspective where a lot of these third generation farmers are coming from, I feel that the conservation authorities in our country aren't doing enough in terms of saying we're going to blanketly ban this captive breeding of lions for hunting altogether, because quite frankly, at the moment, they're just pussyfooting around it. And basically, legislation that is soon to be implemented, if all things go according to plan, is really to the lion's detriment. I mean, they're just drawing out the process of an industry that will still happen. So although I'm not against hunting per se, if done really correctly, and to go into it in saying that people would feel very differently about people farming, say, for instance, our local antelope called the blessbuck. No one would even give it two thoughts if those animals were shot for trophy. But because it's a lion, it does hold a different status and people start to get more emotionally attached. The big issue I mention in the book is the practice of almost raising lions as your pets and then kind of selling them off to the trade of hunting because you can get some good money for them. And that's what really it's boiling down to over here. It's almost like a betrayal to these animals. The other part that I thought was interesting about this is that you described the way in which the lions are killed and that you had recommended that if they're going to be hunted, that they're killed, that they're shot in the head versus several shots into the body because it's the most humane way to do it. Yeah, well, quite rightly so. I mean, the debate continues as to the area size that a lion should be released in before it's hunted and and all of these kind of things. But quite frankly, it's inconsequential whether you release a lion in an area of five meters squared or 2,000 hectares, because ultimately anyone coming to hunt that animal is going to find it. And, you know, the trophy hunters pay a large sum of money. In actual instance, it's probably better for the lion, as I mentioned, to be shot in the five-meter squared enclosure because at least you know that this hunter is actually, and I use the term hunter very loosely because these are not hunters. This is like clubbing seals. It's like shooting fish in a pond. These guys come out, and I'd rather have them shoot a lion in a five-meter squared enclosure than 2,000 hectares where they nick it and wound it, and the animal goes along suffering for the next two, three days. But the head versus the body shot, the reason they do that, they use a heart-lung shot, is because it doesn't ruin the trophy. So it's really quite sick if you start to analyze. Yeah, really. It really was disturbing to read that. And I understand that the lion population has dropped from 350,000 to almost 25,000 in 20 years? Absolutely correct. Yeah, quite staggering. And, and I actually did a little calculation the other day because somebody asked me when I started working with lions, what was my estimate of uh, the lion population? And in actual fact, when I started working with lions, which was about 12 years ago, uh, the population was probably sitting at about 120,000. So since I've been working with lions, it's dwindled down to 20, 25,000. That's sad. Is that from farming or is that just wide-scale killing of them? The biggest factor affecting lions in the wild, in the world, or in Africa, is human encroachment. Quite 
plainly put, human encroachment. People are encroaching on the wild territories and their lions have no place to go. So basically they're breaking out of parks and ultimately the consequences, they get shot because they either become livestock raiders or they're deemed a threat, a problem animal, and ultimately they get annihilated. If they are raiding cattle and sheep and stuff like that, the local people are going to poison them or shoot them anyway. So number one factor towards the demise of lions is human encroachment. You know, people will tell you hunting and disease and all of that. Yeah, it has an effect, but not quite as an effect as people. Very interesting. You also write that these animals pick up intent, our fear, our innocence. They pick up everything. And that one of the things that people do when they get near these animals is that they try to control it and they try to bring it into their space. They kind of encroach on the animal's space. Quite right. As I mentioned in the book, that's quite a complicated thing to describe. But quite right, that was what I didn't want to do, is I didn't want to be in a, a situation where I was another one of these animal people. I mean, let me just first say, there's a reason why people are interested in the way I interact with them, because I said to somebody the other day, but I'm not the first person on the planet to interact with lions. And they were saying, yeah, but you're not the first person, the way you, you interact with them, Kevin. And it's really that. I don't dominate them. I let them welcome me into their space. And once you're welcomed into that space, there's no better uh, interaction to have with an animal. I'm a, you know, to lie down with a lion, to be in between his legs, to be in the most vulnerable positions where he could kill you really with one bite to the back of the neck when you're, you're just literally lying there with your neck in his mouth. It's the most honorary position to be in. And uh, it all boils down to that. So, you know, allowing them to be what they are, the lions, not trying to control them. Letting them be lions, it's an amazing thing. What we found out today with quantum physics in the area of telepathy also should lend tremendous credibility to the work that you're doing with the animals. Because we can no longer question, does telepathy exist? And that has to be part of the quotient of connection between you and the animals. Exactly that. I mean, I think it's because people like to, you know, obviously box me and say, well, you're the lion guy or whatever, or the you know, or the predator guy. But it truly does translate to other animals, as you just said. I think it's interesting, too, that a lion's power is in its claws and that those claws are serrated. I didn't know that. I don't think a lot of people knew that. The, the actual back of the tooth, sorry, the claws are not serrated per se very sharp. The power is in the claws. You know, most of the damage that occurs to you when when a lion smacks you are caused by a lion with its claws. That's why I feel it's so unnecessary for people to go along declawing these animals. They use their claws literally like fingers. What a lot of people don't know is the actual canines of of a lion that's got a you know, a little ridge on the back of the tooth, especially on the younger animals. Obviously, as they grow old and their teeth wear down, these serrations wear down like they would on a knife that's overused. But definitely on the back of the tooth, this ridging is almost serrate like a knife, and it obviously helps, you know, when they suffocate their prey. You talk about that there's no wild area in South Africa, which I thought was fascinating. You said there's national parks, so there's managed areas, but it's not wild like the way we may be perceiving that. Can you explain that? Yeah, quite right. Even our flagship park, which is really huge. I mean, and most people think I'm crazy by making a statement like that. But, you know, our Kruger Park, which is probably the size of England, it's quite a massive area. Most people would go, well, wow, that's wild enough. Why I make that statement is that within the Kruger Park itself, we are always having to intervene and manage the animals. We've got the problem at the moment of the elephants. Do we cull them or don't we? Now, if an area is truly wild, you don't have to intervene. The ecosystem is in balance, and uh, we wouldn't even be having this discussion about whether or not you cull elephants. 
the other issue is all these lions that are forever breaking out of the parks, breaking out of the wild. I mean, they shouldn't be breaking out of the wild because they shouldn't be contained. So the, the mere fact that, you know, we as people have put fences up means we are obviously impacting on the natural ecosystem, which in turn means that there is management needed. So for various parks, Kruger Park needs a different kind of management style as it would, at, for instance, my park, which is only, you know, a thousand hectares. So the point I was trying to make is that as soon as humans intervene, there is this management that needs to come with it. And not everyone is always going to like what that management tool is, especially when it comes to the management of animals by having to cull them. And you also make a distinction between domesticated animals and wild animals that are born into captivity. And you want that very clear. I mean, lions that are born into captivity are a different breed, really, in my opinion, to what I've seen in my career of animals that have been brought into captivity from the wild. That, for me, I've seen it, I've experienced it, it is absolute craziness. It's a no-no. Whereas the animals that are like 50, 60th generation living in captivity do adapt to this kind of lifestyle. It doesn't mean that we must put them in a box, give them fresh food and water and throw away the key and think we're doing a good job. It's more to it than that. But I just feel they do adapt a lot better to, you know, when I see that people have taken animals from the wild and stuck them in a cage or in, in captive situations. That's crazy. I would imagine that that would be very similar to humans as well. Well, absolutely. I often draw the analogy between taking lions in a zoo, for example, and people in prison. And you tell me the difference. You tell me that those people in prison have a quality of life, except the only difference really being that people in prison were put there for a reason. The lions, on the other hand, or the other animals, for that matter, didn't ask to be put there. This part of you that knows when and how far to push the barriers, don't you think that that part of you has kept you alive? That's a very good question because actually I was asked the other day, what is the gift that you think you have, you know, with these animals? So I actually, I went away and I pondered over it and I don't think so much it's the gift of interacting with the animals, but moreover the gift of knowing when to leave them alone. That's what's kept me alive. And believe you me, yes, these animals are unpredictable. I would say yes to all of the questions that are fired at me. However, over the years, knowing the animals as well as I do, and knowing when to leave them alone, it's not even a question of, oh, well, you're going to meet a lion on a bad day and he's going to take your head off. I would approach an enclosure, an animal, and know immediately. Um, I don't need to go up to him to pat him on the nose. He's already given me those telltale signs a million miles away, and it's up to me to either listen to those signals or choose to ignore them. And don't you think that that's also developed in you on a deep level over time once you're resonating and you're willing to see and you're willing to receive where that animal's at versus just walking in in your own bubble? A hundred percent. I mean, that's the crux of us is developing that and honing it over time. You went to England and were doing personal training there. You were helping people get into shape. And you really didn't have a good time in England and went back to South Africa, which changed the course of your life. Talk a little bit about that. 
it's amazing how things happen in your life and <laughs> don't know where, where you're going and, 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 and why you, why you do them. But I think, I think everything, you know, has, has a reason as to why it happened. And I needed to probably get that out of my system to realize that Africa and, and South Africa specifically was where I was meant to be. Um, and I, you know, I was thinking about this the other day in terms of, it's amazing how, you know, a door that opens might not be the door that, you know, you were hoping would open, but it opens leading to another door and that to another. And eventually, without you knowing it, you, you do eventually get to where you want to want to be with enough persistence, passion and motivation. You know, I often talk about uh, to people about uh, my success is, is really boiled down to three key ingredients. Um, that that uh, I really live by, and, and one is obviously the passion w- which I have for the animals. But uh, with that passion, you've got to have um, perseverance, and you've got to have a commitment factor to go with that. Um, otherwise, it, it can all be for naught. You can have the passion, but but ultimately it'll fizzle out if you if you can't persevere and, and, and commit to it. One of the things I notice about you and your work in the way you live is that you trust living in the mystery the way very few people are willing to because what <laughs> what you're describing is living in trust as well and living in the mystery you had to go to england only to find out that your destiny was calling you back to south africa to meet rodney fur and to then unfold the rest of what you're here on earth for as well as to meet mandy correct yeah, well, I mean, quite, quite, uh, quite right. I mean, I don't, you know, I, I'm always, my, my family always tell you, I'm always willing to give something a try. And I think that's most of the time where people will go, well, ah, you know, I'm, I, I know that's not what I want to do, so I'm not going to give it a try. But I'm always exactly that. I mean, in the mystery of knowing, well, if you don't give that a try, who knows what that might lead to? You know, you might meet somebody who, like a Rodney Fur, who, who will open, you know, that door for you. And even even and even then, some people will meet a Rodney Fur and go, "Well, how how is he going to help me uh, achieve my dream of working with animals?" Because they're so obsessed with the fact that they need to work with animals, they're not willing to look anywhere else uh, or allow anywhere else to enter into their lives to help with that. White Lion, the movie, when you and Rodney began that project, I don't think you had both imagined the amount of time it actually took to complete and deliver this film. Had you? Sure, no. <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a definite emphatic no. Um, we had no idea what we were getting involved with, and 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 you know, it's it's just it's just <laughs> one of those things that just <laughs> just snowballed out of control very quickly, and and before we knew it, you know, multiple years had passed by us, and <laughs> and and we were, and, and we were a lot worse for wear after it, you know. Relationships with animals were worse for wear. Our relationship was worse for wear. The bank account was worse for wear. <laughs> Everything was worse for wear. But I tell you something: it was character building. Um, it was a hell of an experience. It was a learning curve. It was, you know, at the end of the day, when we look back at it, we're both very proud of it. And in fact, we had just had really great news yesterday that it uh, won the audience award at a kids festival in in Frankfurt at the Lucas Film Festival. That's awesome. So, yeah, that, awesome. that, when you hear you hear things like that, suddenly all the hard work and 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 all of that seems worth it, you know. And we're really excited because it's coming to the states uh, on the fifteenth of October. We're very doing a very exciting. small, 
small, small release. You know, we're going to start to to roll it out very gently and 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 judge the response. But so far, you know, all the all the uh, you know the the feedback has been so positive. So, although in 2005 when we embarked on this project. We had no idea what we were getting involved with. You know, looking back, it was such an experience and uh, really well worth it. It is true that projects and ventures have a life of their own, don't they? They do. It's almost like a, <laughs> it was almost like a different animal. <laughs> Taming the beast. <laughs> the landscape and the structure of what you all had to work with was probably tougher than doing most motion pictures. You had it uh, would, tougher because you had to deal with real-time nature and wildlife. I would agree, uh, you know, 600 million fold. <laughs> no, seriously, it was, was um, you know, we, we, we weren't, it was one of those projects that was very ambitious. And, and at the end of it, we said, well, we are, now we can kind of understand why, you know, uh, Disney films with animals are animated because to do a real-life kind of animation, which is what it really is, and follow this line around for a full-length feature, 90 minutes, and and tell a you know adventurous story with this animal without the animal looking like it's um, um, a circus-trained lion because they they weren't you know these are just lions that I have relationships with. It was a, a, a hell of a task, a mammoth task. But I mean, at the end of the day, I think the results were uh, completely astonishing to everyone because people just are, are staggered by how. The animals did all what you know did what they did in the film, and uh, that's that's where the the you know we had the passion, the patience, and the perseverance, and uh, the commitment to to see it through. Because I mean, we could have easily at at year two say, yo, you know what, this is killing us. Let's just uh, quit while we're ahead. But we managed to to finish it. Sometimes, even when you want to quit, the great spirit doesn't let you. <laughs> You can't, even if you want to sometimes, because you're just carried away by the project. It takes you like on a wave. Exactly. <laughs> uh, too entrenched, too entrenched, absolutely. And, you know, we owed it as well to to the animals that, that had, had worked so hard on the film uh, and also the people. The, you know, everyone who contributed to the film uh, contributed so much time and effort and energy. Um, so we owed it to them to, to really, you know, uh, finish the dream. I also was floored when I read in part of the pride that in making this, you had done a lot of shooting and there was a guy that was transferring tapes <laughs> to the editing facility and he got robbed. Oh my God. Oh my God. <laughs> you got to share this with the audience. If you could have planned it or imagined it or concocted something, you would have never concocted this. And yet it happened. You've got to tell them. Well, that was a movie on its own. We still, we still <laughs> got to make that movie, but no, it was it was you know it wasn't just any old footage. There was three components to the footage that was stolen, and there was about thirty thirty two tapes that were um, uh, high definition tapes, and and you can imagine what what's on these thirty two uh, tapes. It was um, footage of aerial photography with the lions that had really been very difficult to do. Um, it was behavior. One of our cameramen had spent months with a pride of lions, uh, just you know, getting behavior that we needed to cut into the film. So that was stolen. And we also had some fantastic footage of um, uh, our hero lion, our hero white lion, fighting this animatronic brown lion, this tawny lion. Um, and that had all been stolen. So we had basically lost not just 
you know, a lion walking left, camera left to camera right, which we could have repeated at any given day. It was really significant behavioral footage and aerial footage that we couldn't retrieve. Um, but on the light side, it's funny how things count because when we eventually managed to get the insurance claim right and got to reshoot it all, um, we we were so amazed at what we got um, in such a short space. Um, and in actual fact, some in some aspects, we improved on on, on what we had had um, beyond our wildest expectations. So, you know, all's well that ends well. It's amazing. By the way, if you ever want to find that footage, there's a way to find that footage that's as unorthodox as your way of communicating and working with animals <laughs> called remote viewing. <laughs> <laughs> and the U.S. government, the U.S. government spent fifty million dollars on a on oh, yeah. a uh, a project called Stargate to develop a protocol for locating data, transcending oh, wow. time and space. And I've interviewed two of the people from the Stargate project. But wow. the nice thing is, is that you never have to spend a lot of time, energy, and money going through the traditional logistics of locating something there's a way to do it that's much faster. So if you ever <laughs> if you ever want to find those tapes, if you happen to want to get them, even though your film has already been released, do call the Rainmaking Company. <laughs> I'll be in touch just, just out of curiosity, yeah. <laughs> just to know where they, where they went. <laughs> and I'll be happy to put you in touch with the people that can take care of that for you. I know it sounds wild, but it's really true. That's what they do. And they also teach it. You were interviewed, was it by vets? that you were going to be a veterinarian? Was it by the school or was it by the actual veterinarians where you weren't answering their questions properly <laughs> in a way that they wanted to hear? Well, yeah, that was, uh, that was in my interview uh, <laughs> for, for veterinary school uh, at the university. So this was all the, you know, the professors and deans at, at, at the faculty. And yes, I, I, you know, I had a reputation for voicing my opinions back when I was younger. I think I still do, but, um, yeah, I told them that I didn't um, think that the, you know, the theory side of 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 school, the the you know the marks, the sciences, and all of that was as critical as the practical side, uh, you know. And I voiced that uh, quite. Uh, they they asked me how important I felt my marks would be, um, you know, and would I pick up my grades? And I, you know, I told them that I felt that they should really be concentrating more on people who had an affinity for the animals and who really loved the animals. And that the grades weren't the be all and end all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> again, to say I didn't get in. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I understand. I understand. Well, you weren't supposed to get in. Thank God, you were supposed to get out quick. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. There, there's a classic point of you know uh, the mysteries and 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 the reasons. You know, at the time I was upset and horrified, but uh, things happen for a reason. And also your experience in England and it just not quite working out for you was really the silver lining in the beginning of you stepping into your full destiny. Well, yeah, yeah exactly. Imagine imagine I had found England okay and I'd got into a job and got into the rut there. We, we might not be having this conversation. You had talked about wanting to raise money for buying land for conservation and I was wondering how that's going. Are you in a fundraising process? I know you're doing part of it through documentaries, but I was wondering how it's going. Yeah, we, we this, this last year has really been, I don't, I don't know where it's gone. It's just flown by. 
and there's been so much on the go, which has all been really, really positive, which has been fantastic. But the the the, the trust that I've been um, wanting to set up, and I mean that that we're actually busy as as I speak uh, on the phone to you, are busy with that because yes, that is something for definitely for 2011. Um, and it's it's really about giving back to uh, the conservation. There's some projects that I've earmarked in in Botswana, um, and and uh, the likes of uh, there's one in South Africa as well, um, where I feel they they definitely need the captive ambassadors to help give them a boost. Um, and also the the trust is is really been set up to ensure that the lions and the animals that I have here at the kingdom. You know, God forbid something should happen to me that they will be all looked after and that they can continue to live out the existence that the existence that they deserve to live. Will we be able to find out about the trust and how people donate money to the trust or what it's called? Absolutely. What what I what I will be doing is 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 you know uh, announcing it along all the the different. Uh, um, um, you know, for networks that that we have access to, all the social media, etc. Um, but the, the the easiest way is to just keep keep come, coming back to my website, which which we update uh, frequently, and that it'll be there because there's been a lot of, especially out the US, the US have, because my my series um, had, had launched there. Uh, well, it was the Monday before last, this last Monday, and then the, the last part of the series is is this next Monday on National Geographic Wild. Um, has had such a phenomenal response from from the U.S. The guys wanting to um, help uh, donate and fund, and really been tremendous. So that's obviously uh, put the fire under my backside in, in getting this done. So if they refer to the the website, definitely it'll be there, and and you know it'll it'll hopefully hopefully soon. And that'll be at www.lionwhisperer.co.z like zebra a, correct? Yes. That's the, that's the very one, yes. I would like to talk to you a little bit about your work with the brown hyena, Shy. Okay, good, and- good. So it's the first time I've ever been asked questions on the brown hyena in an interview, so I'm very excited. Talk a little bit about your experience with the brown hyena. Well, the brown hyena is a very secretive um, animal. Uh, it was thought to be solitary in, 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 uh, you know, in these parts in Africa. Um, uh, you know, a strong member of the hyena family. It's, 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 it almost looks like a werewolf. A lot of people don't know what the brown hyena looks like. They, 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 they know what the spotted hyena looks like, but they, they, they don't even know that there are other hyenas. Um, it, it almost looks like your German Shepherd Alsatian with these big bat, kind of, you know, like um, Batman kind of ears. <laughs> Uh, werewolfy looking, really long, wiry hair, and it puts its hair up, you know, when it gets a fright or it wants to look intimidating, it sticks its hair up and makes it look like three times the size, almost like a porcupine. And a lot of people have, you know, these uh, superstitions surrounding these animals, and in South Africa, they get um, killed um, all the time as problem animals, as vermin, basically. Um, the farmers in the areas just hate them because they believe that they they kill their, their livestock. And and to a degree, it's true because obviously these animals are, are, are um, quite opportunistic. They're 99% scavengers, but they, they will uh, take the opportunity to take down, you know, a domestic animal if they can. Um, however, it's, it's again, it's due to human encroachment. It's due to people not uh, crawling their animals properly. Um, but, w- you know, when you get to form a relationship with one of them, they're the most amazing animals you'll ever 
get to meet um, and just being accepted into the, the life of the brown hyena. It's just, uh, yeah, it's amazing. And not many people, you know, even want to um, really know about them. So it's, if, if, if I can get more people interested in brown hyenas, uh, it will be excellent. I know that they have a bad reputation, hyenas in general, and that they have a stronger bite force than a lion, which I had no idea that that was true. What do we need to know about hyenas and how do you see their contributions in the wildlife kingdom? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think, uh, let's, let's just, uh, you know, uh, um, shift over to spotted hyenas for a second. I think what, what people need to understand and, 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 and I've been banging on about this for, for a number of years now is that, um, they, the problem with spotted hyenas is they make a really good villain in a, in a documentary series or in a, in a in a in a feature film like The Lion King or the likes of and and a lion makes a good protagonist so you know uh, that, that's the problem that hyenas face uh, the real truth of of the matter is is that hyenas are such good competitors uh, to lion they're the lion's closest competitor uh, the other cats like leopard and cheetah don't even compete with lions but whereas hyenas are concerned they compete for the same territory they compete for the same animals and and this is where the the interactions come across uh, let the truth be known in a lot of the areas where hyenas occur uh, they hunt a lot of a large proportion of what they eat so the spotted hyena is not just the scavenger and in fact in some areas in africa um, the spotted hyenas are, are hunting more uh, in the area than the lions are. In fact, the lions are scavenging more. So it's a horrible, a horror fact that people don't want to know. Um, so if I can get, you know, the message out is that, you know, hyenas have a real good place to, to hold in the ecosystem and it's not their fault that they're just so good at what they do. Um, and, uh, yeah, people just, if they, they, they took the time to not listen to all the mumbo jumbo and, and actually did a bit of homework, they'd realize that they, absolutely brilliant animals worth conserving and worth loving. Have you ever been scared with any wildlife at any time on an internal level, whether you showed it or not, but internally that you were concerned for yourself? Um, you know, yeah, it's a hard one because uh, I suppose each each individual has got their, their level of, of, of what they would perceive to be as concern and 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 in the in the moment uh, you know there has been situations where i think yes I, that was concerning and then a, a day later after mulling over it i think to myself no i wasn't it wasn't worth being concerned over so maybe yes there has been instances where where you know i have been in a situation where i've misinterpreted the situation and it's normally when you get into um these situations where you are you know stepping out of the the norms uh, like a mother with her cubs or a male lion who's mating with a female um so you really are exploring you know the the edges and uh so i suppose yes i mean the answer is yes uh, but i suppose it's how you deal with it i, I think the animals feel that too you know there's probably instances where they walk out, they walk away, or I walk away, and they go, "Sure, that was a close call with Kev. I was really <laughs> scared. <laughs> I thought I was going to get my head taken off, but sure, <laughs> my heart was racing." <laughs> now I noticed that you do not carry a stick, which traditionally happens working with lions. Tell the audience why you don't. Okay, I mean the stick is just a false sense of security, indeed, and uh, and it also. It also um, it takes up one of my hands, <laughs> which which I like interacting <laughs> with. But, but yeah, jokes aside, I mean, a, a stick is just um, 
it's a silly um, item that 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 is so traditional in the in the the realms of of, of training, whereby I am going to use the stick to as a as a weapon to almost beat you into submission. Um, and and whenever I you know raise the stick, you know what's coming, and and you can see you know a lot of animals. In fact, with my animals, if I pick up a stick, they go, "Are we playing fetch?" Or number two, "Am I going to bite that stick in half?" Because that's what they do. Um, so really, it, it it was about that for me. I, if I if I was going to interact with animals, I wanted to do it on on their level, to be accepted into their group. And I don't see any lions carrying sticks around, so I thought uh, as a human, I shouldn't be either. Um, so that, that was the reason I didn't want to carry a stick. I didn't want to carry a gun. Um, and the pepper spray was, was kind of a, a, a easy truce that I had with management at the park I was working with at the time to say, okay, I will carry some kind of safety device in case things get out of control. And, and the pepper spray has, has come into its, uh, its own over the years in separating, you know, fights with lions themselves before they get out of hand and, and all of that kind of thing. So um, that that's really, um, uh, you know, been the use of the pepper spray, as well as the fact that, um, um, you know, in some in some, some situations that I've been in, it, it, it's enabled to defuse a situation before it gets, you know, um, out of hand. It just buys time, basically, doesn't it? It does, but I'll tell. I was just about to tell you this. Um, I've emptied a can of pepper spray on a line, and 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 it's had absolutely zero effect. So what what you can what you can rest assured if a lion is enraged and angered, no stick, no gun, no can of pepper spray or any of the above is going to uh, save you. Um, so yeah, it's false senses of security, I suppose. You said no gun too. No gun would. Well, yeah, I mean a gun. You know, if you're working close range with a lion, and you you tell me how quick it takes a lion to to grab you and kill you. Do uh, you think you got time to draw a gun and 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 actually shoot a lion? All I have time for is singing my way out. <laughs> Quite right. Fancy yeah. footwork and a bit of smooth talk, and 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 you'll manage. <laughs> Hopefully, you'll talk that lion down. I was at a singing class 25 years ago, and I cleared out people from a Russian cabaret by singing. So that's the only thing I would do to get the lions out if there was a problem. <laughs> I figured if I could do it with humans, the lions would say, let's get the hell out of here. She's a terrible singer. Let's go. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> now, I know Mandy is your soulmate and your wife, but I also would like to talk about your other soulmate, Napoleon. Yes. Let's talk about Napoleon. You call him your long lost brother in a lion's body. That's profound. Yes, indeed. No, he is. Um, most people won't get it when I, when I talk about him, but... Uh, you know, he there's just this this unspokenness between us that uh, um, he knows and I know, and and it's amazing. Uh, out of out of all the lines still to this day, I don't think I've got a better relationship um, uh, than with him. So, uh, and and the people will tell you it only when they see us together. Um, you know, you can talk about it, you can tell people about it, but when when, when people actually witness it, then they go, oh, okay, no, no, I understand what you're talking about. So uh, now he's a, a special cat, and obviously the, spe- the you know the the first of two that I ever met, Tan Napoleon, and um, to the still lives here at the farm in a really nice place, and he's still the lovely cat that he's always been. So it's it's amazing. And what about Meg? Oh well, yeah. Now you see, 
It is favourites and favourites and favourites. Yeah, no. Yeah, Meg, Meg's a, you know, out of the female uh, lions, uh, out of the lionesses, uh, also just a soulmate. Uh, really, you just, you know, every now and again you come across, uh, it's like people, you know, you come across a person that you really bond with and and you don't know why, you know, I'll tell you why you why 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 is your bond so strong with your best friend, you can't explain it, because, oh, well, I like her and she's got a good personality and she's fun to be around, but there's uh, something more to it than that. Now, who was the animal that you swam with? Was it Meg? That's Meg, yes. Meg's my swimming buddy. Absolutely amazing. Did you find, Kevin, that some people were very amazed and excited and some people were aggravated that you're really turning the mindset over? You're turning it upside down. A lot of the false beliefs and superstitions are being transformed and thrown out now. Yeah, well, I mean, funny enough, I've had overwhelmingly more positive feedback from people. Um You're always going to get the the people that are saying, you know, and it's purely, I I boil it down to ignorance. You know, people see a picture and then they just feel the need to comment. So most of the negative comments come from uh, people who have just seen one picture and and they feel the need to express their opinion. And so you take it with a big pinch of salt. Um, But by far the, you know, the the, the people out there who have followed me a bit and, and really dig a bit deeper um, th- that has been overwhelmingly positive and people have been going, you know, go for it, good on you, you know, keep it up. So amazingly, yeah, um, it's, it's funny though, you always, uh, human nature, I suppose, is you read, you can read a hundred positive comments and you can read one negative and you'll mull over it going, well, why did that person think that, you know? Uh, but over the years now, I've learned to you know, just ignore it. Do you see yourself now as a writer and producer, aside from your main calling, which is directly with the animals? Do you see this now as an expanded part of you? No, no, and no, <laughs> no, no. I think the no, the producing and the and the, the writing, uh, it, it, you know, it's something I, I will, if if asked to, would do again. You know, I, I don't. Uh, in fact, we'd be talking about producing some documentaries for next year. Um, the writing, if you know, I was, I was approached by a company to maybe write a, a children's book on, on you know, the adventures of a little lion cub or something similar, um, and that I would do. But no, I don't, I don't, I don't want, uh, you know, I don't see myself as, as as delving into the realms of writing and that. I think my my, my specialties and my forte lies with the animals, and in fact, that's where I wanted to be. I think that's uh, you know where it needs to be. That's the primary calling. We really have enjoyed having you on the show. It's such an honor. And one of the things I appreciate in listening to you and reading your book is the fact that you've maintained your humility, which is often very hard when somebody has simple beginnings, not simple in terms of your life, but simple in terms of the structure of life. And then all of a sudden the manifestation from a book and then a film and then being on this channel and that channel you seem like you've maintained your poise and your peace and your core. Well, I hope so, and I'm glad you've you've said that because it's it really is important to me. Um, because you know, I think I think that's that's one thing that people should never forget is their roots, and and uh, you know, then that's another thing the animals will teach you very quickly is is uh, to to be humble, humility. I mean, that's the number one thing. The, that's one thing to say over the years, what is the one thing that the lions have taught you? And that uh, it's humility. Can people come to visit Lion Park? 
Um, we are uh, we are hoping to be um, open to it. it, it it's a, we're not going to be open to the the mass of the masses, you know, in right. terms of the mass public. But we will be open to and and uh, it'll, again, it'll appear all on the website. But we hope to make it a park whereby. You know, we can have these uh, smaller groups around and give them a really good experience, let the animals. Again, it's about the animals. I don't want, you know, masses of people coming and prodding and poking. Right. It will be controlled, controlled tours through the through the park and at the animals' time. And, and if the animals want to come up and greet, they can. If they don't, then, you know, tough on you. Um, so, yes, uh, to answer the question, definitely. Um, and, and again, 2011, we are starting to do it. Uh, we've We've opened up to... You know, international volunteers are coming out, and they, they they've been really good um, helping out at the park. And and uh, so, so from that perspective, it's it's already started, and we've been doing some you know uh, corporate things, uh, corporate tourism, uh, motivational talks, uh, team building, and that kind of stuff. It's really been fun, fun for the animals, fun for us, and uh, it's been good. That's awesome. Well, I look forward to coming to meeting you and Mandy and Meg and Napoleon and the other members of the family and visiting the entire Pride. God bless you for doing what you're doing. Thank you so much, and I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me on your on your show. It's a pleasure, and thank you so much. And thank you to Mandy for making this possible as well. Many, I'll many blessings. pass it on. It's rain-making time, Kevin. <laughs> okay, yes, definitely it's rain-making time. It's rain-making time.